Colossians. We ready for chapter 2 to close out chapter 2? I'm excited to get into chapter 3. Paul in chapter 2 has been helping us navigate the landmines that come after we walk to Christ. After we, in faith, accept Christ, Paul says there's some landmines you've got to look out for. He gives us this big yellow, flashing red, caution sign kind of warning. Look out now that you're in Christ. You've been saved by faith. There's some things that you need to worry about so that you don't get tossed back, thrown back into a life of doubt, a life of darkness. The truth is that all religions outside of Christ and his gospel make you the focus. You realize that? Pick any religion of any age outside of the Christian gospel and those religions make you the focus of the remedy. I mean, if all religions are trying to bridge the gap between us and our Creator, it's important for you to realize that every other religion except for the gospel of Jesus Christ puts you in the driver's seat of that remedy. It makes you the catalyst for that remedy. It makes you the priority and the focus of the remedy. One of the greatest battles that you will have if you seek to win someone else, a friend, a coworker, a family member, if you seek to win someone else to the Lord, if you're going to share the gospel with them, you're going to have to fight the war that is the pride in that man or in that woman. And we all have to deal with that war. When we came to Christ, we all hung on to our own pride. You see, lost men and women, including you and I before we came to Christ, we don't mind grace, but we don't want a whole lot of grace. We don't want the kind of grace that we sang about just a moment ago. We like grace, but we don't want amazing grace because amazing grace takes you and I out of the equation. Amazing grace is completely grace. It's only grace. We like grace in, in the sense that we want God to forgive us. We want God to overlook some things. But we don't want it to be amazing and complete grace because we want a partnership with God and we want God to see that we deserve His grace. Amazing grace doesn't allow for us to earn or deserve any part of it. That's why it's amazing. It blows us away. We can't comprehend it. To the human mind, it, it, it's beyond imaginable. So we like grace. We like a little bit of forgiveness. But in return, the battle of the pride in a human being is letting go of the idea that somehow or another, God is going to look down from heaven and say, that guy deserves my grace. There is nowhere in the Bible that says we deserve God's grace. That's really the definition of grace. But we have to call it amazing grace to further emphasize the fact that you didn't deserve God's grace at all. I mean, that's the point. A gospel that says it's you and God working together and somehow God's going to extend some forgiveness and grace and you have to step up and earn it and deserve it, that is the Loch Ness Monster in the Bible. You cannot find it. It's the abominable snowman of doctrine. It's not here. But that's the battle you have to fight on the inside, before you come to Christ, you, you've got to wave that white flag and say, God, I'll never earn this. I'll never deserve it. It has to completely and wholly and amazingly be just your grace. And if you dare to share that good news with someone else, that's the, that's the wall you will hit in their heart and in their mind and in their flesh, in their humanity, and in their sinfulness. That's the wall that you will hit. It's that thing that causes them to say, you know what? There's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. I have to rely on amazing grace. The problem is, is that our pride wants to get a little bit of the glory, doesn't it? We want it to be a partnership with us and God. 
so that when God puts his arm around us and says, yeah, this guy here, you know, he wasn't perfect, but he was, he was, he was close, so I, you know, I let him in. That, that's not the story. That's not going to be the scene in heaven. You see, grace says that God does not share his glory. But our pride says we want a part of it. That's what Paul's fighting for. That's the doctrine that Paul's fighting for here in Colossians. Now, I'm going to do something a little bit different today. I'm going to preach another passage so that you understand this passage. That'll be all right? One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament is about a guy named Naaman. And if you're one of our men, you've probably heard me tell the story of Naaman because it's an important story, and it's a gospel story. It's in 2 Kings chapter 5. You say, Pastor, are you sure there's gospel in 2 Kings chapter 5? I thought the gospel was just in the New Testament. But indeed, the gospel is throughout your whole Bible. Naaman was a warrior. Naaman was a man's man. Naaman was everything that a man wanted to be in his day. He was impressive, to say the least. He was Clint Eastwood of his day. He was credited for shooting the arrow that killed the king of the guys they were fighting. He he had a list of reasons why he was not just popular, but powerful and important. In fact, 2 Kings chapter 5, if you want to turn there, the first verse of that chapter says, Now Naaman, captain of the army of the king of Aram, was a great man with his master, highly respected. Because of him, the Lord had given victory to Aram, the man who was also a valiant warrior. But that first verse ends, and that's not the first verse, so don't get confused. The first verse of that chapter ends by saying, however, that even though Naaman had that long list of credentials, he was, in fact, a leper. And in his day, that was a huge disqualification. In fact, it was not just a problem to his reputation. It was a problem to his health, obviously. It was a problem to his life. You see, no matter what Naaman did, no matter what he accomplished in his life, he had to face the fact every day as he watched his body die in front of him in a very graphic and painful way, he had to, he had to understand that he was dying. You know, we all kind of get the idea that we're dying, right? And the older you are, the more obvious that becomes. Your hair starts to fall out, right? Your bald spots get bigger. Um, guys, your body doesn't work the same way that it used to. Um, instead of sitting up and getting out of bed, you kind of have to do one of those roll over halfway to the side kind of things. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah? Tying your shoe. No, Vic, you don't know. Tying your shoe becomes more of a chore. You've got to start by pulling on a knee, Right? You're not, you're not going down there. You've got to bring that foot up to you. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, we all sort of know we're dying. But when, when something like leprosy or a modern-day disease, something that maybe you're more familiar with, Lou Gehrig's disease, for instance, something that is debilitating, something that begins to show its effects in your body on a daily basis, when something like that strikes, that person really knows they're dying. Yeah? Naaman knew. Naaman knew. He he was falling apart, literally falling apart. So the story of Naaman goes on that he uh, he goes to his king and he asks for sort of a a few days off because there's this slave girl in his house, a servant girl that he had captured from the nation of Israel, a Hebrew girl. In one of their many wars, they had defeated Israel and he 
brought this young child in to serve his family and to serve his wife. And this little girl who goes, as a matter of fact, unnamed in all of the chapter, she tells Naaman's wife that Naaman ought to seriously consider going to see the prophet in Israel. Long story short, Naaman says, what do I have to lose? I'm falling apart. Nothing else is working. I'm going to Israel. I'm going to find this prophet. Little girl doesn't get a name. Naaman's uh, uh, wife never names this little girl. She's just a servant. She's just a child. And the prophet who's in Israel never gets a name. But Naaman's still going to go find this guy. So Naaman asks permission, and he gets a few vacation days, and so he goes to Israel. And the story goes that he brings treasure, he brings clothes, he brings gifts, and he brings an entourage because he's going to find the prophet, and with all of his glory, with all his regalia, he's going to so impress this guy, or he's going to pay him enough so that he could buy his healing. And he gets there, and he rides up in this in this great John Wayne western scene. He rides up with his posse, and he's got all of his trunks of clothes and jewels and all this stuff that he's going to use to impress the prophet, and he gets there, and the prophet won't come out. <laughs> and Naaman's sitting up on his horse thinking to himself, Why won't this, does this guy not know who I am? Where, where, where is the prophet? And the prophet decides, who is, by the way, Elisha, the prophet decides that he's going to send his own servant out to Naaman. And here's what he's going to tell Naaman. Chapter 5, verse 10. Elisha sent a messenger to Naaman saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh will be restored to you, and you will be clean. Simple instructions, right? Pretty simple plan. No real extra, no fluff. Here's what you need to do to be healed. Verse 11 says, however, but Naaman was, what's the word? Furious. Interesting, isn't it? Naaman was furious, and he went away and said, Behold, I thought, I thought he, meaning Elisha, prophet of Israel, I thought, and here's where we get a peek into the psyche of humanity. And this is not just Naaman's heart, but it's evidence of your heart and my heart outside of Christ. So listen carefully. I thought he will surely come out to me, right? And stand and call in the name of the Lord his God, and this is great. Wave his hand all over the place and cure the leper. Naaman wants respect. Naaman wants glory. Naaman wants a show. Naaman wants magic. Naaman wants the blessing without having to ever bow the knee. Naaman wants the blessing without any obedience on his part. Keep going. His heart further reveals that in verse 12, are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, those are rivers where he was from, are they not better than all the waters of Israel? Much less just this Jordan River. You see, Elisha said, go dip in the Jordan River seven times. That's the river of God's people. And Naaman, still on his horse, says, what? what's going on here? I kind of thought you'd just come out, I'd give you some dough, you'd wave your hands, abracadabra, here's your healing, I go back on my way. Elisha says, it's not going to be like that. In fact, I'm going to humble this guy. I'm going to send out my servant. And he's going to tell you, here's what you do. You go get in the dirty river of God's people. The Jordan River was not that impressive. But that's what you do. That's the instruction. 
What would that take on Naaman's part? It would take faith. And it would also take humility. And in verse 12, Naaman says, I don't get it. Why did I ride all the way over here to dunk myself in this dirty little river when I had the beautiful rivers of my own home that I could have washed in? Look at verse 13. Somewhere in Naaman's entourage, he has a servant. Yet another servant. That's a whole other sermon for another day. If you look at the servants that are in Naaman's life, that little girl, and now another unnamed servant who brings truth into Naaman's life. Verse 13. Then his servants came near and spoke to him, and this is what they said. My father, had the prophet told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you the very simple thing, wash and be clean. Here's what his servants realized that he did not. The heart of Naaman would have climbed Mount Everest to get his healing. The heart of Naaman would have fought a dragon, a fire-breathing dragon. The heart of Naaman would have done any great thing that Elisha would have asked him to do. But Elisha did not ask him to do some great thing, did he? Elisha asked him to do the simple, humbling, by faith thing. Does Naaman get any glory by humbling himself, climbing down off of his horse, and laying down in a dirty river, hoping against hope by the word of the prophet of the people of Israel that healing will come? If he dunks himself down, not just one time, not just two times, maybe I'll try it if I just have to do it twice, not just three times, but you do it seven times in front of the whole entourage you brought, seven times. You've got to be thinking that Naaman, full of pride, saying, I'm not going to get down there and look like an idiot. But the wisdom of his servant says, hey, listen, um, maybe I'm wrong here. But if he would have asked you to do some amazing thing, you would have probably done it. Why wouldn't you do this simple thing? The only answer is, is that we as humans, we like to hold on for our own glory. And our own pride gets in the way of simple faith. You see, that is an Old Testament story of what Paul is dealing with in the Colossian church. And it's what we deal with as we are coming to Christ. It's what we deal with on the inside. It's what you deal with when you talk to somebody about the good news of the gospel. They've got to let that thing go. And they need, God, they need God's help to do it. They've got to be able to wave that white flag and say, you know what? That great thing that I would have liked to partner with God to do and accomplish my healing so that I would get credit, so that God would see that I deserved this healing, I, I've got to let that go. That is Colossians chapter 2 and following. Go back. Having received grace through faith, Paul wants them to continue in faith. That's the message to the Colossians. And he wants them to beware of slipping back into the human trap of thinking that says, I must do something to remedy my problem. You know, left to our own devices, left to the best plans that we can come up with, 
the things that Paul faces here and that the Colossians face, it's the best we can do. If we know, and we do instinctively, that there is a gap between us and our Creator, what can we do about it? We have about four options, and Paul addresses every one of them right here. He started off by saying the best we can do is try and figure out in our own human mind, in our own limited understanding of this universe, of where we've come from and where we're going and how we should live in between, in our own limited understanding, we should put the best minds together and try and figure out what we can do to bridge the gap. The problem with that is our information is limited. And the best philosophies of humankind fall short. Paul would call them ABCs compared to what God knows in heaven. There are the rudimentary principles of this world, and they fall extremely, disturbingly short. And the best we can do is build on the faulty ideas of the guy who came a generation before us. How you doing right here? I mean, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you're working that plan. Maybe you're working the plan that says, hey, what are, the, what are the best ideas that we've come up with as humans? And I will then go inside of myself and I'll try and figure out, I'll try and figure out where that leaves me and God. The truth is it always leaves us short. But if we're going to try and go inside of ourselves and come up with our best philosophies, we get a few things that fall out from there. Very often we get, through every generation, this idea that we can make up a list of rules, holy and righteous rules. And if we can keep those rules, then certainly God will be impressed and certainly that gap between he and I will be bridged. Sounds good, right? If we're perfect. But what if we fall short there? What if we can't keep the list? And Israel found out they couldn't keep the list. And so instead of giving up the list, they said, well, let's make a bigger list because maybe if we can't keep these, we can keep these. And you see how they just dug themselves? And, and when you say it out loud, it kind of just seems even more foolish, doesn't it? But they just dug themselves a deeper hole. We do the same thing, don't we? Maybe you don't consciously think about it. But somehow we think if we're going to bridge that gap between us and God, somehow maybe if, we, if we're good boys and girls, God will be impressed with us. And we go through in our daily life the checks of, have we kept this rule? Have we kept this rule? Have we done good on this one? Have we done good on this one? And at the end of the day, we lay our head on the bed hoping that we've done more good than we've done bad. Are you playing that game? I mean, is that your plan when you stand before God to hope that your life tips in the balance of good over evil? The problem with that is that even if it does tip that way for you, you still have to answer for the sin that is in your life. So we can try and go what he would call the legalistic route, keeping of the laws. And we do that. It wasn't just a problem for the Colossians, it's a problem for us. Then he talked about the problem of what we might call mysticism. And we didn't spend too much time on this, but let me summarize it. Because here's another direction that we go when left to our own devices. We think, one, let's make a bunch of rules and let's try and keep them. Two is let's get super spiritual and let's do things that make us look even more spiritual than the guy standing next to us. And we do some of the weirdest, craziest things, some of the most mystical, unexplainable, unexplainable, magical things that we create on our own to look more spiritual. And you probably don't have to have the TV on very long to find some of this nonsense going on. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, I'll keep it short on this one, but he, here's, here's a good way, here's a good litmus test for staying off of this path. Anyone that comes to you with some sort of sales pitch like this, hey, you've come to Christ, great, have, have, you, have you 
have you had this experience yet? Have you, have you experienced this yet? Has this happened yet? Have you ever done this in church? Have you ever had this happen to you while you're worshiping? Anything that sounds anything remotely like Jesus plus some other experience, plus you involved in doing something else, red flag should go up. That is not the gospel in its purity and its in, in its simplicity. That is, once again, Jesus plus you. Anyone that comes to you with any sort of gospel that is not just focused on pointing you towards Christ, but it points you back to, hey, that's great that you, you're in Christ now, but we're going to step you up. You're gonna, we're going to move you from freshman to JV, and then we're going to put you on the varsity team. If only you can get involved in this sort of thing. Be careful. I think Paul would say, as he did at the beginning here, be cautious. Be wary. Run the other way. So we got legalism. Makes some sense to us. Let's keep rules. We got mysticism. It makes some sense to us. Let's do some super spiritual stuff that makes us look even better. Maybe God will be impressed with that. And we do some crazy stuff there. And then we end up going down another road. And it may be that we, we try all three of these and a combo of all three of them. But we go down the road now. And it all, listen, it all flows down from the philosophies of man. Us trying to go inside of ourselves and figure out the best way to bridge the gap. We try legalism, we try mysticism, but then we also try this, this thing that we call asceticism. Asceticism is the idea that you're not going to make a list of things that you must do to impress God, but you're going to make a list of things that you should not do to impress God. Asceticism in the Greek really is a word that focuses on the idea of exercise. Physical exercise. Physical discipline. And asceticism came to be a popular route of gaining righteousness, gaining holiness, gaining and earning God's favor by saying that I will deny my body physically this, that, or the other. Now through time, men have come up with some of the craziest ways that they believe, based on their own ideas, that God would be impressed if only they stopped doing this. Uh, I read some uh, last night that holy men have decided that if they only walk on one leg, God will be impressed. True story. Holy men in parts of this world have come up in, in the genius of their own mind that if they live a significant portion of their life with one arm raised in the air, no joke, that this will impress God. Or if they would climb a 30-foot pillar and live on that pillar in solitude, or if they will never speak to another human being, or if they will never get married, or if they will avoid this, or if they will avoid that. You tracking with me here? This is where monasteries come from. This is where monks come from. Now, uh, let me give a, a, a word of caution here. I'm not saying that solitude and some of the, the disciplines that come with uh, separating yourself and telling yourself no sometimes, telling your flesh no, that they are not valuable. But when put in the context of I'm trying to show God that I deserve his forgiveness and somehow by my activity God will be impressed, then you've gone astray from the gospel of Jesus Christ. But we've been trying crazy stuff like that for ages and ages. 
Colossians 2. With all that in mind, now listen. We're going to finish up the chapter, and I'm going to give you the first couple verses of chapter 3. Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, and when Paul says if, he infers that you have. And so maybe you could put in parentheses there, since you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, because that's the idea of the Greek word if. If you have, and you have, died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to the decrees, such as, and he gives examples of the silliness in verse 21, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. 22, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, by the way. And this, this, is, this is almost verbatim what Jesus would tell his disciples and what he would tell the legalists when he was on earth when they would say that Jesus was a glutton and a drunkard and that he would eat and drink on Sundays and he would do things that weren't according to the rules, Jesus would say to them, hey, don't you realize that that food that you eat, you eat it, it goes in, it digests, and it goes into the latrine, and it's, it's gone. It has no spiritual significance at all. That's what Paul's trying to say here. That with the very use of it, it perishes. You eat it, and it's done. The point is, there is no spiritual significance to those physical elements. Why are you still in captivity to the things that you aren't going to do? I won't eat that. Now God will be impressed. God's not impressed. You see, the Jews of Paul's day here in Colossians, they were pulling in some of the Old Testament shadows, those shadows that Paul's already addressed, and they were saying, hey, some of these shadows we still have to keep up. And Paul would say, listen, no, they were shadows, but the substance has come. The goal is the goal, not the thing that gets us to the goal. And the shadow would point us to the substance, and the substance has come, and now it's Christ. And so the shadows go away. The shadows might play some role in discipline as a godly man or a godly woman. You may say to yourself, you know what, this isn't a good idea for me to be involved in. There may be some level of asceticism in your life. But any sort of rule that you make in your life to attempt to impress God so that you feel like you've earned his favor, then you've discredited the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You've made amazing grace, just simply cheap grace. You see, because if, if you are going to get involved, if you get to impress God, if you get to earn or deserve any part of it, then Jesus didn't need to come and die at all. So you're dead to that. Why would you keep doing it? Why would you keep doing things like not handling, not tasting, not touching? They all refer to things that are destined to perish in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. And he bookends what he's already said at the beginning of this chapter. He said these things that start with men, they, they don't go any further than that. And they short circuit because they're based on human philosophies. And we all are flawed and we fall short. We don't have all the information. We're not God. Follow God's plan. He has all the information. Verse 23, these are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement, notice self is the focus here, in the severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. What does he mean? If you really just look at it for what it is, Paul says the truth is that it looks real attractive. I mean, it's a good facade that you would look more spiritual by saying that you're doing all this stuff 
you're involved in this sort of mystic worship experiences, etc., of all different sorts, and, and man, you really are impressive, and people are ooing and aahing over your, over your spiritual uh, facade. And there are a whole lot of things that this guy, he would never be involved in. Man, that looks real good. But if that's all it is, Paul would say that's just a hollow shell and it does no good when it comes to having value of fleshly indulgence. The truth is is that the shadows do nothing to take care of the sin. The substance is the only thing that wipes away the sin. Those do's and don'ts were meant to point us to the remedy, the true remedy, that we would expect and recognize the true remedy that is Jesus Christ. Um, a guy named Luther, I don't know if you know much about Luther. Maybe you know him for a couple hymns that he helped write. Maybe you know him for the thesis that he posted on some door some long time ago, way back in the day. But Luther was a guy who had to deal with all of this. Luther was a monk himself. You know how he became a monk? He became a monk because he was walking down the street and he got hit by lightning. And he figured God was trying to get his attention. And because everybody else in his day that was trying to seek favor with God and trying to bridge that that deep chasm that everyone sensed in their own heart, everyone decided that the best way to do it was to become a monk. And so he left his family, and he went, and he lived in solitude. And he became, in short, uh, the best monk. He was a monk among monks. He was, through the monastery, looking for peace with God, he was looking for a way to have his sins forgiven, just like everybody else was. Looking for a way to be justified, that he might be right with God. And so when he joined this monastery, his hope was that he could save his soul through this activity. He kept the rituals, he kept the schedule, which meant they woke up about one or two in the morning. And monasteries that still exist still do this. They would wake up after about three hours of sleep. And they would go into a prayer worship time for about eight hours. And then they would do manual label, labor for the rest of the day. They would carry out their chores. Most of the time, all in silence. Nothing would ever change. I watched the 60 Minutes documentary on uh, probably the most famous monastery uh, in the world that still has the same routine every day. And nothing has changed in probably 50-something years. Not a single thing has changed. And they do it 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. They do not, do not take a single day off. Pretty committed, right? I mean, it seems pretty spiritual if you just look at the face of the thing. This is what, this is what Luther got involved in. He wore the clothes of a monk. He believed what they believed. And eventually he thought he would somehow gain his admission to heaven, although he never really knew when that would be. He lived the life, in short, of a monk. But then he started to realize that you know, nothing was really getting better when it came to his fleshly indulgences. I mean, he never really felt like anything was actually changing. That's what I think Paul's getting at in verse 23. It's really of no real value. It looks pretty good. But it's not doing any good. And Luther started to get restless, and so he would try and step up his game a little bit. And at one point he decided that he was going to enter into the varsity level of monkhood and begin to confess all of his sins. Because there was a group of monks that said, if you would only confess each and every one of your sins, then you would really be something. And so Luther, he bought to that and he decided that he would start counting not his blessings but his sins. 
And every little sin that he could think of, he would confess. He would go to another monk and he would confess it. It got to the point where he was confessing so much sin that the monks got tired of hearing his confession. And they got tired of hearing such small sins that they would turn him away and say, listen, unless you got like a real sin, don't bring that, that silliness to us. And then Luther got more and more frustrated. And then he started to realize, you know what, I probably have sins that I don't even know I have. Like there's stuff in me that I know is wrong, but I can't even put a finger on it. So how do I confess that if I don't even know what it is? And so this wasn't helping Luther. All he felt was more guilt. All he felt was more anger towards God. There was still no real remedy for the sin that resided within him. Now remember, this whole time, it looks pretty good on the outside, doesn't it? So he decides to take a trip, and um, he makes a journey to Rome. And Rome was, as you might imagine, it was the... uh, it was the center of the religious world. It's where the Pope was. It's where the cardinals were. It's where the cathedrals were. He had never been there before, and so he was in a little bit of culture shock. But he was desperate now, and so he goes to Rome. And uh, historians say that he was sadly disappointed. He realized that the leaders that he was following from a distance were disregarding some of the fundamental truths of their own Christian faith. He realized that priests were getting drunk before Mass to the degree that they couldn't even finish Mass without passing out. He found that other priests were doing 70 to 100 Masses a day. They were just running as many as they could so they can get as many people through, so they can get as much penance and money from as many people as they could so they could buy more alcohol. He was, he was severely disappointed. He found that they were breaking their vows, their vows of celibacy. He found that some priests had put themselves in a category above the others because they were not involving themselves in homosexual activity, but they were keeping themselves confined to only women. And that was their claim to fame. He was, to say the least, he was scandalized by what he saw in the sale of relics in that day. He thought that the church was just selling its soul to make, to make a nickel. He found that um, by buying these relics that he could, in the sales pitch, release souls from purgatory. And he found no basis for that in Scripture. And so he was further disappointed and further angered. But it all sounded pretty good on the surface, didn't it? One uh, biographer quoted Luther at the end of his trip as saying, if there were a hell, Rome was built upon it. And so he went back, and he was still confused. He still had no real, no real answer, no real remedy. Until he was asked by some of his superiors to begin teaching the Bible to some students. And this was really the first time that Luther said that he would study the Bible, because before it was all about prayers and mystical experiences in worship, etc. But now he, were, uh, he would open his Bible, and he was asked to teach Number one, Psalms, and then he was asked to teach Romans, and then he was asked to teach Galatians. And if you're familiar with any of those three books, you'll understand how this became the turning point in Luther's life. When he got into Romans, he would say later that the turning point of his life became one verse. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, and it says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God For the salvation of everyone who believes. 
first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, and this is the sentence that floored Luther and drove him to his knees. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And it said while Luther was in Rome, there was a, a cathedral that had 28 stairs. And it was, it was taught that if you climbed those 28 stairs on your hands and knees and you prayed the whole way up, then you would elevate yourself in righteousness. And so while Luther was still there in Rome, he did that. The story goes that by the time he got to the top stair, after not just climbing on his hands and knees, but trying to up his game a little more, he kissed each stair on his way up. He got to the top and he looked back and said, what in the world am I doing? That's my translation, not his. And the thought on his mind was, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a righteousness from God, from first to last. And so Luther decided that, you know what, I'm done playing this game of improving the veneer on my life, improving the facade, because I still feel shallow, hollow, and empty. And Luther would in himself say what Paul has said here in Colossians 2, verse 23. They sure have the appearance of wisdom in their self-made religion, self-abasement, self-treatment, severe treatment of the body, they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. They do no real good at all. Now, let me give you the first few verses of chapter 3. And this is the turning point in the letter. Paul would say this to the Colossians. Therefore, based on everything you've heard thus far, if you have been raised up with Christ, and you have, that's the truth, past tense, you have been raised up with Christ. Keep, and that's a continual activity in the Greek, Keep seeking the things above. Don't stop. How do we live now, Paul? You live on the faith from your past, what God has already done, and you continue to seek. What do I seek? He gives you the answer. Continue to seek the things above, namely Christ. That's it. Christ. Who is, by the way, seated at the right hand of God. See, Paul's thought here is, how do we get at the right hand of God? How do, we, how do we bridge that gap? I mean, that's what we're all looking for, right? That's what we're trying to answer in legalism, philosophies of men, our mysticism, our asceticism. We're all trying to get next to God. And Paul says, Jesus is already there at the right hand of the Father. And you have been crucified with him. You are with Christ. But notice what it says here. Notice the prepositions. You are with Christ in God. Verse 1, there is therefore you have been raised up with Christ. Keep seeking things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Don't taste, don't touch. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in who? In God. Is there a remedy? There is. Does it have anything to do with your achievements, your earning, your deserving? It does not. Good news, world. Good news. Stop your striving. 
Stop trying to come up with the best ideas you can come up with to bridge the gap between you and God because one has already done it and he is at the right hand of the Father and you are with him and you are in God. Look at verse 4. Not only are we secure in him, verse 3, that's our present status. He gives you a future hope. Look at what he says in verse 4. We will be glorified with Christ. When Christ, who is our life, that's the living here and now, when he is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Is our hope just for now? No, it's not. Our hope continues to the day that Jesus comes back. And when the clouds are pulled back and Jesus returns, the confidence we have is that he has been at the right hand of the Father and we are in him, and so we are at the right hand of the Father. In fact, in Jesus, we get tucked into, somehow, into the Godhead himself. And when he comes back, there will be this great revealing, not just to us, but to all those who would teach these false things to the church, that we have been and will always be hidden in Christ. There's a pretty important word here in verse 3 where he says, you have died and your life is hidden. That word hidden is the word in the Greek that we translate crypt. Kryptos. It's a, very, it's a very poignant picture that he paints here. Your death, you have been buried, you have been crypted into Jesus. That's your status, that's your location, but it's also your future hope. And so when Christ is revealed in the final day, guess where you are? You're not here looking up at him. Maybe this is why he says later, we'll be called away in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be united with him. Because we're already with him. And the whole world will see that that is in fact the truth. That is in fact the truth. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, we sing. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And wholly trust in Jesus' name. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus would give great hope to his disciples, and I think this will be where we close. In Matthew chapter 11, he would say this to his disciples. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise, the intelligent, and have revealed them to infants. That's what we get called, infants. It's a picture of helplessness. An infant can't earn or deserve or impress, can they? So Jesus says, Lord, Father, I'm glad you hid these things from the smart people out there who are trying to come up with their best plan yet. But instead, you have extended grace to the infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. You get the point here? It's all hidden. It's a mystery to us. We can't figure it out. We're infants in the equation. We think we're wise. We think we're smart, but we're not. And Jesus says to the Father, thank you for not making this about how smart humans are. Thank you that nobody knows me without you telling them. Thank you that nobody knows you without me telling them who you are. Nor does anyone know the Father except for the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. 
What is our only hope? Our only hope is that there would be God in the flesh, a son who could tell us about his father. A son that could say, if you've seen me, you've seen him. Our only hope is, is that he would will to reveal himself to us. We can't be smart enough. And then Jesus said these words, and you'll recognize them. Come to me then, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you, what's the word? Rest. Rest from what? All your flailing about, all your mental gymnastics, all your spiritual uh, exercises, all your legalism, all your philosophizing, all your asceticism, all your mysticism. Let it go. Stop. Rest. Come to who? Just me. That's it. Come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray. Lord, what good news to know that um, from beginning to end, from first to last, our salvation is dependent on grace. And grace, when understood correctly, Lord, as we have seen it this morning, is truly amazing. It's beyond us. And Lord, inside of us, we want to we do something, Lord. We wanted to do something to impress you to begin with. And then we looked into the face of Jesus and we realized that there was nothing more left to do. Having seen our Savior on the cross, broken, poured out for us, we realize there's nothing we can add. But very often, Lord, even after falling at the foot of the cross, we want to get back up and start trying hard again. And those around us who do not understand the gospel, they would tell us that there's more for us yet still to do. But Lord, remind us daily that we can rest in you. Your yoke is actually no yoke at all. There is no no burden under you. You are easy. You are light. You lift us up. You do not weigh us down. So Lord, my prayer as we close is for those who are, who are here this morning that feel like living out their Christianity is some sort of burden to them. Because when they leave here, they hope that they don't, they don't, they don't stumble again this week. They hope that somehow they don't disappoint you and then you get mad at them and that, and that their week is oh, just ruined and they got to wait for the next Sunday to come back and, and confess and get things right with you again, Lord. And they just go through that cycle. And in their heart and in their mind, they're right back where they started before they ever came to grace. Lord, help us to live by faith, the faith that brought us to you to begin with, the faith that said we need amazing, truly amazing grace. It's our only hope. And so, Lord, on Monday, we still need amazing grace. On Tuesday, we still need amazing grace. And Lord, my prayer is that we, me included, could live a more joy-filled, victorious Christian life, not because of our strength, but because we understand our complete weakness. But that we also understand that, that you, God, you know us completely and let, yet you love us still. And you're not mad at us. You don't hate us. 
your back's not turned away from us this morning when we came into the congregation. You're not giving us the silent treatment this Sunday because our week was was less than we hoped for. Lord, you, you love us. You loved us from the beginning in spite of our sin and today today you love us in spite of our our sin. And so Lord, we uh, we end this morning with a song that confesses what we want to be true in our in our hearts. That we didn't come here, Lord, to sing. We didn't come here to pray. We didn't come here to fellowship. We didn't come here to learn so that you would be somehow more proud of us. We've come because you deserve our worship and we love you. That's it. Because of your love for us, your amazing, gracious love towards us, we're here because we love you. fight sin. We'll fight sin tooth and nail. Not out of duty. Not out of fear. But out of love for the one who bled and died. For the one who tore the the veil to the Holy of Holies and gives us complete 24-hour, seven-day-a-week access to our Creator. Jesus, the remedy. We offer, we offer our songs today. We offer our prayers today. We offer even just our, our attendance. We offer it all for your glory. For none of our glory. It's all for yours. So Lord, we, we clear the stage of our heart of anything else we ask you, Lord, to help us. Whatever's on the stage of our heart and mind, Lord, just wipe it away. Because all we seek to bring you is our love, our adoration, our thankfulness.
Sing all I want to. 